welcome everyone. It is it's me, Austin Moyers, and I like sparkling water and old gardening tools and souvenir mugs. And my name is Michael Pugh, and I thought we weren't listing three things this time. Since we oh, have, so sorry. Since we have a guest. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's okay. Well, that is fine, yeah. The three things I like is Austin... My wife, Brittany, and our guest, Benjamin Hedick. Hello, everyone. Hey. Hello, Benjamin. What a very flattering introduction. <laughs> so, so although we didn't uh, plan on things panning out this way, due to convenience and Benjamin being in town, uh, he is our second guest and the husband of the first guest that we had, Taylor Hedick, who spoke about Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games and Benjamin's going to talk to us and we're going to interview him about a similarly fascinating subject. For now, Austin, how yes. have you been? What have you been up well, to? Well, first off, um, if you're new here, this is Chronically Fixated and it's a podcast. Oh, did we, did we not say <laughs> yeah, the name of the podcast? It, it's it okay. all got derailed because I'd said three things on accident. I, yeah, uh, my mind anyway. just—I just had like a seizure and didn't know what to do. <laughs> Welcome to Chronically Fixated, the podcast where me and Michael, who are friends with one another, talk about things that we like, and maybe you might like them too. Mm-hmm. That's what we do here. Um, yeah, I've been good. I've been busy. I played a live show last night for the first time in a long time. Yeah, um, you sent me a pic right before you went up of the kit yeah, that you were playing with. So, what um, was that? What was that gig? What type of music was it? Um, it's with a local band called Tigers, um, and if you guys want to listen to them, they have it's kind of hard. It's an they chose this name right, and I think they were kind of going for like, you know, in the '80s, everyone had like really plain like Chicago and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. but they weren't worried about search engine optimization in the '80s, right? Yeah, um, SEO, man. Now it's something we do have to worry about, and it's fairly hard to find Tigers, the band from Lubbock, because um, yeah. you search Tigers, and it's you get a lot of pictures of big cats. But um, there's an album out called Paladuro. Um, they're an indie rock band from Lubbock. Very good, very fun. So I was playing with them last night. So they more like alternative rock type stuff. Yeah, kind of a kind of bedroom poppy in a way. Um, okay. You think you're going to be playing with them consistently or was this just like a, they needed a drummer for a gig? This time I was filling in. Um, I would like to play with them more and there's a chance that I could, but yeah, it was just a one-time thing at this point. So yeah, you do know your way around some studio work. So sell yourself yeah. a little bit, man. Um, <laughs> I can write up a pitch. How have you been? Uh, well, you know, I've been, it's been interesting since we last talked. I did play some Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, Yay! Master Duel. And I was having like an okay experience. And then I played someone and I took my turn. And then I didn't get to play again for 22 minutes. That is the worst. They and, need to find a better timer system, honestly. And I lost uh, because <laughs> they just kept on synchro summoning things that let them draw more cards and special summon yeah. more things. And. I think the 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 thing with Yu-Gi-Oh that kind of keeps me from jumping all the way in, and I won't side, you know, I won't make us go off on a tangent of this for too long, is that compared to Magic, 
there's just like no limit theoretically to how many cards you can play in a turn. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, there's not. Yeah. I was going to say there's the amount you have in your deck, but you can also play from the graveyard and from the banished pool. Yeah. And, and you can the players graveyard. And yeah. And if you want to be a robot, you can make a deck that just sort of infinitely plays itself. Yeah. And I started encountering a lot of people online who were doing that, <laughs> which made it a lot less fun. I may, I still mess around with it from time to time though. So I'm not a Yu-Gi-Oh hater. Um, Good. I mean, I was having fun building like a zombie and vampire deck. Um, but then there were some people that ruined my fun. I do want to bring up, have you heard about the recent rule change in Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments? I saw that it had happened, but I didn't read it. Uh, one of the people that I follow who is big in the community was, he put, uploaded some videos with, you know, clickbaity tiles, titles, you, and I was like, I don't, I'm not in the mood. But what, what now, was it? You are now no longer allowed to stink at Yu-Gi-Oh! Oh, right. <laughs> I did hear this, yeah. You will be disqualified if you smell bad. And I thought, is oh this God. just a case of nerds steering into the skit a little bit too much with their stereotype? Then I dug deeper. This is like a mini chronically fixated. So apparently... Some people had been using a tactic in Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments. I'm not making this up. I promise you can look this up. <laughs> where if they didn't feel confident about beating their opponent, they would like just bomb themselves with like body spray so that sitting near them would be like suffocating would be like suffocating and would force them especially if they have like allergies or asthma or something like that to concede the duel <laughs> because they crazy yeah. physically cannot play so part of it is yes you must shower Yu-Gi-Oh players <laughs> in the audience but also you are no longer to engage in chemical warfare against <laughs> fellow duelists in an oh, effort man. to cheese your way through a tournament chemical warfare <laughs> is now banned at all future tournaments uh, that's incredible i hadn't heard that um i just figured it was because that i mean that there is a bit of a stereotype of the stinky card player but sure but this was like a whole new level oh of stink gosh. this was that's intentional so tactically deployed stink <laughs> wow. uh but yeah other than that i've been okay had some medical procedures done that have helped get me some diagnosis and stuff um and uh, other than that, you know, been keeping busy, been working on my thesis. Uh, and I also have a very big chronically unexplained project, uh, in the works that'll probably take multiple episodes, uh, to talk about, but, but will probably Ooh. be really, really interesting. I think for most people, uh, it's exciting. So I have another little follow-up from the last episode, which is that I've been reading um, House of Leaves, which Michael mentioned. Oh, yes. Thank you and for reminding me. I wanted to ask you about your recent reading. So yes, thoughts yeah, on House it, of Leaves, which uh, Benjamin can jump in as well because uh, he read it as well. I think also on my recommendation. Yes. I can't remember. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey. Um, it, I, it's taken me a while. I'm reading it at work, like in my off time. And so... Are you finished it, with it? Because we don't no, want to I'm accidentally not. spoil anything. Okay. Yeah, I'm about 
halfway through probably. Right. So um, it's kind of hard to judge where you actually are because so many pages are like. Yeah. Right. So uh, first impressions, because I remember you texting me uh, and you said something like, I think this guy might be a genius question mark. Yeah. Yeah, I did say something like that. I mean, it feels that way. It is so unique. I don't remember how much we said about the format beforehand, but... um, Yeah, I didn't want to spoil too much because I think the experience... It's one of the few books where the experience of physically reading it is... Right. uh, ...part of the enjoyment of the novel. So I didn't want to spoil too much. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, I don't want to to either necessarily. Um, What's your experience been like so far? I I mean I've I've loved it. I thought it was awesome. I have so much fun like opening it to you know one of the very uh, unique pages and like showing it to someone and they're like what what is this? <laughs> um, it has been super good, super unsettling, very captivating. I will say um, I don't know. It probably deserves some content warnings. And if you're someone who cares about content warnings, I'm sure you can find which warnings are relevant online before yeah. you read it. But um yeah it's been it's been awesome it's really really i mean there's nothing like it honestly it's funny because there are tips i could give you to make reading the book easier on yourself (laughs) Uh, i don't know of any other book that's like that but i could just tell you hey read it like this and you'll get through it faster and absorb the information easier i'm like no like you got you got to get through the whole thing it's it's almost better to just let people struggle through it yeah um but i yeah i i think it's incredible i mean yeah of course like i brought it up as a horror novel so it's gonna have dark Mm -hmm. themes it's gonna have um some very unsettling uh material some people call it an outright disturbing novel i don't know if i'd go that far uh but it does give you the experience of reading the book, I think, puts you in a very manic state, similar to what a lot of the events of the story yeah, are absolutely. and what the characters are experiencing. Um, so, you know, Benjamin, what, when you were reading it, uh, sort of what was your impression as well, without spoiling too much for Austin? Um, I remember just loving all the formatting changes that again I won't spoil um, I remember just loving having to read the book physically a different way that I read other books like I had to manipulate the book physically in order to read certain parts easier <laughs> use tools and <laughs> yes. things like that um, mm-hmm. and I have that book's very nostalgic to me because uh, this is right when Taylor and I got married so I have very like um very memorable experiences of going to the laundromat with her and doing loads of laundry and just sitting there and reading uh house leaves it's it's a book that means a lot to me because of that yeah it's great i'm really glad that you picked it up uh however i was even more excited by the fact that you actually read a 40k book i did yeah did you finish it yeah, I finished I finished the that first one and then right. I also got the second in the series and um I so I don't know if I ever said this on the show. I work at a library now. Anyway, um 
so I have access to books. Obviously, we don't have any of these in our library, so I was having to do interlibrary loan. And the second book I got, they gave me like eight days, and uh, <laughs> I did not get far into it before I had to return it. But yeah, they're but pretty yeah, that long. First book, it was so good. It was so good. Right. So, like I said, it's not a literary classic, but these books are way, way better than they have any right to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, so what, what did you like about it? What did you, it was a uh, Horus rising in the Horus heresy series, which is sort yes. of a prequel to the overall 40 K universe. So, so what did you sort of take away from the experience? What, what things surprised you? What, what, what elements of the book did you really enjoy? I think one thing that I, so first off, it was like really good, um, sort of light combat sci-fi fun cut up the bugs type sci-fi, you know, like not, not thinking too hard about it, which I love sci-fi that you have to think about. Like this book kind of stands in direct opposition to something that like, like a uh, Ender's game, for example, where like, Oh, maybe we shouldn't be killing these bug creatures. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of criticism of war and all of that is definitely implicit in this book. But for the most part, it's just like, this is the, this is the glory of war and uh, a bunch of big boys who are participating in that. Um, and the, the artists who follow them around and talk about it. And and so it was just fun to read because like it, it had been a while since I just had almost like pulpy action fiction. Um, and that was great. But I also love that it didn't, it didn't take a ton of time explaining itself. Um, which is an interesting choice in a universe so dense as 40 K. Um, it just kind of jumped into it and let you catch up however you like, you could just read it or you could, you know, get on the wiki and, uh, find some more information out to explain certain things. But, um, I think I was thankful that it didn't take too much time explaining all of the, uh, the high sci-fi stuff because like that left more, more time to just, have fun and read you know yeah and a particularly important theme that emerges in the horus heresy books is how history is written and interpreted Mm -hmm. and so it i think it would actually do a disservice to those themes if it just had like a prologue that was just dry history of the world building up to this point because it's actually important that you hear how these characters talk about the history of the 40 K and how they talk about it with each other. Um, So I wonder if you agree with me on this, if you sort of know the major events of the Horus heresy, which, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not that hard to figure out. Um, Yeah. I I, I know that the basic storyline of it. Yeah. I can listen to, podcast episode where i talk about it as well it feel and and everybody who when these books were first being published also knew like the major events uh it feels kind of like shakespearean like a tragedy like a tragic play that you're sort of watching unfold um because you finished the first book and the first book doesn't really end with like anyone like turning against like the Imperium of man or the emperor or anything like that. But you can see the, the seeds being planted. Like you can see the beginnings of distrust between people. 
and you can see the the just the hint that there's things going on that the protagonist uh, Gavriel Loken, the space marine, uh, is not aware of that he may not be as aware of everything mm-hmm. going on uh, in his uh, in his legion and in his in the military in general as he had been led to believe. So yeah, I also love like you know there's there's this larger than life character Horus who's essentially a god to these people. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get to these little windows into what's going on in his mind, which is obviously very important to the Horus heresy storyline, right? Yeah. Um, understandably so. And yeah, th- at the end of that first book, um, he makes the decision to change the name of his allegiance to the Sons of Horus. And it's like just kind of that first step towards placing him as, you know, a rank higher in his own mind. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Like, I, I can't stress you enough. If you thought that it was just. One guy being a dork. We have a man with a master's <laughs> in English and literature telling you these books are surprisingly very, very good for what they yeah. are. <laughs> I do like what you said about Shakespeare as well. And it also kind of frames it that way. Like at the at the beginning of at least both of the copies that I got, um, they have the the what are the what are the characters V-Day or whatever where they, they list yes. all of the main characters and their roles just like yeah. you would in a Shakespeare script at the beginning. I think it even um, says like the players. Um, yeah. That's right. And it has like the monologue at, at the beginning. It's like, oh, it's yes. the year 40,000. You know, um, and it begins with like the ironic statement of uh, I was there when Horus killed the emperor. But right. they're not talking about the emperor. The real one. The real one, they're talking about when they went to a planet of humans that had been disconnected from Terra, uh, from Earth, and they had their own emperor. And so it became a joke, like amongst the soldiers. Uh, oh, I was there when Horus, you know, killed the emperor. Uh, ha ha, they say it to get like a shock out of the, the remembrancers, which are like the artists and poets that are like recording their deeds. Uh, because, oh, it's so absurd, you know. It's so funny because Horus would never do that, right? That's the mm-hmm. joke. And that's sort of, that is just so, such palpable, like, dramatic irony. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, it, it feels like you're watching a stage play, which if you go back and listen to me talk about, like, oh, purple's the stealthiest color because nobody's seen a purple work. Like, you wouldn't expect a universe like this to, <laughs> to be able to frame stories in this way. But it's genuinely really good. And my experience so far, I've read five of the Horus Heresy books and a couple of the short stories. And I've read a couple books not set in the Horus Heresy. Generally, the quality stays pretty consistently good. Um, The author of Horus Rising, the first book... um, is oh what's his name um i also can't remember it it's not adb he's the, he's another author that people really like um dan abnett dan abnett that's right he also wrote some great uh comic books for dc comics um he's definitely one of the best for sure but he's be- he's definitely one of the best writers they have but generally with only a few exceptions quality is is really good um, so yeah, I'm really glad that you enjoyed that. I'm glad it made you 
want to read a little bit more. Even if you don't yeah. dive all the way into 40K Universe, it makes me smile that you gave it a shot. I might. And, I, honestly, and, I would like to try and play someday, but it seems like such a commitment. Well, here's how it starts. It starts with, well, the books are cool. Um, oh, maybe I'll try this video game that's on sale. Well, maybe I'll just paint some models. I don't have to play with them. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. And then inch by slope. inch, you you give up your ground until yeah. before you know it, you're running your work ar- army in a tournament, you know, or trying to defend uh, the fact that you play Tau. Um, so... <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's enough catching up. It's yeah, should time. we get into it? Yeah. So... Benjamin, you we brought you on here to talk about uh, fantasy writing and world building and uh, you know publishing and, and doing work as an amateur author. You're in the process of working on some novels and uh, and right now you're sort of navigating the publishing landscape. So why don't you go ahead and you know reintroduce yourself, introduce. Uh, you know, what you're here to talk about in your own words and sort of give us an introduction as to how you got started uh, diving into this hobby that's become probably a little bit more than a hobby at this point. So, yeah, go ahead and, and, and give us a run now. Sure. Uh, hi, I'm Benjamin Heddick, uh, husband of Dungeons & Dragons lover Taylor Heddick. Um <laughs> I am, like you said, an amateur fantasy writer. I have written exactly one and a half first drafts of two different fantasy novels. Um, And I'm currently halfway through one right now that I hope to finish uh, the first draft of at least within a month or two. Um, I like fantasy a lot. Um, I also like writing a lot. Um, I was an English major at LCU. Um, and ever since I've graduated, I've done, uh, various different jobs all related to writing in some way. So it's something that I get to do for my job, which is great. Um, sometimes people ask me how I can do what I do and get paid for it. And, uh, I, I'm very blessed to be able to do that. Um, but, uh, I also start, have started doing it in my free time. All right. So... The main thing that you expressed to us that you wanted to uh, voice is when you, first of all, I would want to know, like, how did you really get into writing initially? Um, and Creative then, writing, I guess. Specifically. Yeah, creative writing. And then why of all the genres to write for did you pick fantasy? Sure. Um, I was a very bookish child. Um, I read quite a lot um, when I was going through elementary, junior high, high school and undergrad, of course, and I still read a good amount to this day. Um, but I think just one day um, I just decided, like, I really love to read. Why don't I give writing a try? Why don't I try to write something and want to read? Um, so I just sat down and I had an idea and I, just started writing it, and it's not really uh, any more complicated than that. You just sit down and you just put one word behind the other, and um, hopefully you'll find a way to make it good someday. How, how long ago was it when you started? I started 
um, right after I graduated. So it was probably uh, early 2018. Um, and I've, I did take kind of a hiatus because um, I, I moved to Dallas and COVID happened. Um, but now I've kind of uh, been like, okay, this is something I really want to do. Uh, I'm not old by any stretch of the imagination, but I just don't want to look back on my past and be like, yeah, this is a skill I just never developed. Um, but I, I enjoy doing it. So uh, I've loved getting back into it again. Now, you had written creatively before seriously trying a novel, though, right, at some point? Yeah, I did write a little... Uh, I'd write a little fan fiction. I'm not super proud of it. Um, <laughs> and don't worry, I will not go into detail about that. Um, I think it was helpful to me in a way. Um, it was a good way to get eyes on my work. Um, and usually it's kind of hard to get people to care. But when you're like, hey, I like this thing. Um, you can kind of uh, find people who are willing to at least look at it say yeah it's pretty good or not nah, I'd change this um, so it's a I'd say it's a useful tool um, for people who are looking to write about something they're a fan of um, but that seems I, fair I never really thought about it that way like it's I'm sure it's not super easy to get people to be to like hey read my you know 200 page first draft but like yeah <laughs> But a community that already cares about a thing, asking them, like, hey, I, I wrote, you know, 600 or so words on this, uh, on this, would you, what do you guys think? Yeah. I, I never thought about it as being a way to, like, actually get input and let other people, I don't know, just put your foot in the water, I guess. And Benjamin's probably speaking with trepidation. So I've been hard on fanfiction in the past. I'm probably harder than I need to be. <laughs> That's because pretty much all the fanfiction I've been exposed to was really 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 bad uh i think there's there's still some value in it um of course i think ultimately you should push for your own uh, creative works but at the same time writing in established universes can be helpful and like even what we were just talking about the black library yeah, exactly who yeah. publishes warhammer they will have open submissions for people to write warhammer stories to try to hire people to write for them, which is, it's, it's, I mean, basically supported very good fan fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's basically writing fan fiction that turns into a job. So I, I see more value in it than I did in the past, but I like to give Benjamin a hard time. <laughs> yeah. We did not, uh, we did not say that we we're going to be discussed fan fishing. Uh, <laughs> well, <hey>, happened. <laughs> I want your total writing history. You know, it's, you, you didn't just, suddenly start writing in 2018 come on now well, <laughs> you don't we're not gonna make you read it out loud you know we're not gonna <laughs> be like pull it up on fanfiction.net or whatever wherever it's published and and start you can do that if you want but <laughs> well you know one of the most important things about writing is for it to be real and i think it's good that we're exercising that in this podcast yeah. well. <laughs> this is a hard-hitting podcast we're gonna ask the tough questions yeah apparently so um, <laughs> but yeah um all I have to say is I, I eventually came to a similar conclusion that you had to. Uh, I think I did get value out of writing fan fiction specifically and having a pre-built community that was excited to read my work. Uh, but if I um, could go back and do it again, I'd probably 
riot something um, and, and my own universe. Yeah, but then again, you might not have been able to. So it, it was just an important first step for you. Yeah, as, as baby's first finger painting. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, it's okay when you're learning how to do art to use a coloring book that already has lines drawn. You know? <laughs> I mean, to some degree, everybody does. Like, usually, Michael, I, th I think I've probably, I, I think I know this probably, but have you ever attempted creative writing? Yes. So uh, when I was in high school, I wrote some short, horror, short horror fiction. A um, couple, couple of them ended up as official submissions on the Creepypasta wiki. I don't think oh, yeah. what I wrote really counts as creepypasta, but that was just sort of where internet horror fiction was congregating at the time. And I sort of moved away from that because I really didn't like the culture around creepypasta at the time. It became one of the only ways, like Benji was talking about, to get eyes on your um, short stories. And it got very toxic and competitive with like moderators uh -huh. um, like refusing to publish things that like follow the rules and were up to quality and had been like peer reviewed. Cause there was like a peer review process of you had to have like three other like published authors on the website, like read your stuff uh, to be like, Hey, this isn't garbage. Um, and I made some anonymous contributions to like a, a, a collection uh, because I didn't want my name attached to stuff at the time. Um, and I think I still remember my username. It had numbers, but I don't remember what the numbers were. But it was the Long Shadow. Um, and I wrote some stuff, and I collaborated with some stuff, but I really didn't like the direction that that culture was going in. And that's probably the last time, the last time I tried to like seriously do creative writing. Because I just remember working really hard on this story that I was really proud of. It was shut down by a mod. It was shut down by a moderator of the wiki for being too similar to the Jeff the Killer creepypasta, which I still fervently disagree that it was very similar. But then when you went to this person's profile, they had like a 10 part Jeff the Killer fan fiction that they published on the website that was just directly wow. taken from somebody else's story. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if anything I wrote. It was probably it was probably pretty good for like a fourteen year old. I'm sure if I read it now, I would not like it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was probably the last time I tried to do like ser serious creative writing that like I was sharing with other people, other than if you count like songwriting. But I, that's probably a little bit of a different. Uh, I just, that's just, I consider that different in my head. Mm -hmm. um, Austin, have you attempted uh, authorship? I feel like all like bookish kids like us at some point are like, I'm going to write the next American novel uh, <laughs> at some point. <laughs> um, I very, very, very light attempts, really. Um, mo mostly, I think all of them were in the sci-fi world. Um, and it was, I got further in my head than I got on paper, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've never really actually given it a full stab. So, if Benjamin, if you have some tips, maybe I'll, maybe I'll give it another shot. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm definitely going to discuss how to get into, into writing, so to speak. Um, there are a lot of different resources you can use, um, but I'll, I'll just speak on my own experience about how I've gotten into writing, what's been helpful for me. Yeah. Uh, so first, let's. I want to talk about uh, the stuff that you've worked on before. So um, why don't you talk about what you're working on now, uh, and then I'd be interested, if you want to, talking about the, the first novel you drafted and just some insight into why you decided to sort of uh, trunk it, I think is like the phrase, um, because that, I think that might be really helpful to people listening who are interested in being authors like what's it like to have a moment where you've actually written like a book and you're just like this isn't going to work or I need to rethink my approach to this and you just sort of start over because it's hard enough for a lot of people to write a book even if it's never published and so um so whichever one you want to tackle first uh I'd be interested in hearing sure um this is definitely the first time I've ever talked in depth um, to people who aren't like you, Pew, or, or Taylor mm-hmm. uh, about my writing. Um, but I think it would be good for, for me to learn to pitch my stuff and um, just share what I'm passionate about. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, I think it'd be easier to start with the first one. Okay. Um, so the first book uh, is a very, um, it's almost, I'd call it like a vanilla fantasy book. Um, it takes place in like an alternate world, uh, and it's essentially an alternate history of our Middle Ages. Um, and uh, it's, it's in a world where there are talking beasts, and there are uh, these wizards called rifters that have discovered how to open rifts um, and essentially can cast magic that way. Uh, and it was about essentially these young people who are traveling together um, after this mysterious um, demon-possessed woman and just their uh, adventures of doing so. Um, I enjoyed writing it. It was my first book that was my own. And it was the first thing I finished to any degree at all. Like the fan fiction I wrote, I did not finish. Uh, I knew exactly what was going to happen for the rest of it, but I was like, I should, I should probably just write like my own thing. Um, I, like I said, but like you said, Pew, um, I eventually did decide I'm not going to continue to write this because um, I started writing the second book, and I was like, there are a lot of problems with this first book. Um, like there are characters that have certain fates that I wanted to change. Uh, and I was like, mm, I don't know. Uh, that would essentially change the whole story. I'd have to rewrite significant parts of the first book. Uh, so eventually I decided, you know what, it'd be easier for me just to write something else. Um, now that I've been studying writing more, now that I've been writing and uh, just looking at a lot of resources of what other people have said, uh, I went back and I looked at the book uh, after a couple of years. I'm like, you know what? This isn't that bad. Um, it's naturally a first draft. It's a draft that I basically, uh, I wrote and then I went back and I made it readable. 
um, without really making any significant changes. So it's essentially a first draft. Um, but I think it's a draft I could shape into something else, um, something that I'd like more and I'd be more comfortable sharing with people. Um, so that was something that I think was really good for me to do. Um, and it also, it's also been good for me to look back and kind of seen, see how much I've grown and kind of appreciate um, my work for what it is. Um, but uh, eventually I got really busy. Like I said, I moved um, and COVID happened and that kind of made me fall out of writing for a while. But it's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, eventually I did come back and I was like, you know what? I'm ready to write my next book. Uh, this is an idea I've had um, that I really like. Uh, so I studied Frankenstein when I was in undergrad. That's why I did my um, final project on. You flip and love Frankenstein. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> like, I, I, I don't want this to turn into the chronically fixated Frankenstein podcast. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that could be a, your second guest episode. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just amazing. Uh, it's an amazing story, like, period. Uh, it's an especially amazing to go back and look at the context of it. Because um, even great novels that are compared to it that I think are great, like Dracula was written, like, decades after Frankenstein. And I'm like, Frankenstein is a much better novel. Yeah, I would totally agree with that <laughs> as much as I love that classic gothic horror. Frankenstein actually holds up way, way better than, than Dracula does. Because <laughs> um, I'm like, you know what? I think Frankenstein's really cool. I think old school movie monsters and gothic horror are really cool. Like, especially vampires and werewolves. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't really see a ton of stories that at least get really big that are about this. Um, at least not recently. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, you know what? I want to, well, I mean, like, there's Twilight, of course. Uh, and there's plenty of um, self-published books that are successful. It's very, I'm speaking very broadly. broadly please, please forgive me. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but sort of the, the, the trends that made something like Twilight so successful are not really the trends anymore in yeah. terms of what people are reading. At least not for traditionally published books, for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not really like there are all these parts of a book that I think I would enjoy that really haven't been put together in a significant way recently. So I was like, you know what? I think this would be interesting to do. Um, so it's, I don't want to go into too much detail about the plot, um, but it's about um, Frankenstein's monster essentially um, going on a journey across Europe um, and meeting other um monsters of his ilk um, and just chasing after kidnapped Victor Frankenstein. Okay. So to return to your first novel for just a second, because I, I know that this is a question that a lot of listeners might have. What do you think is the value in like writing a whole book that will probably never see the light of day? Like, because there's a lot of people I'm sure that hear that, that are like, oh, I would just like 
give up. If I wrote a whole book and then I looked at it and was like, this isn't working, you know. So, but then um, you hear a lot of authors talk about how they've done this. And not even like, oh, when I first started, I wrote a novel that I never published. Like, I've been writing books professionally for years. You hear this from Stephen King. You hear this, you know from really successful authors and say, yeah, and I just trunk the, trunk this novel and never, and then usually they die and then the publishers publish it anyway. Usually it's not good. Uh, <laughs> but so like, what do you think is the value in doing that? And how would you sort of like reassure the aspiring authors who might be listening why it's okay to write a whole book that's, that ends up not working by the end? <laughs> if yeah, a book nice. falls in the forest, does anyone read it? Does anyone read it? <laughs> I mean, the author essentially reads it in his head ten more times. <laughs> That's probably a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, um, I just didn't really have the time or the focus to fix it at the time. <clears throat> I mean, it's not a coincidence that I wrote the first draft and I showed it to people. Like, ah, you got to fix this, 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 and this. And I'm like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to put this down for a while. <laughs> um, so I really... It was I, like your baby, but not your favorite child, right? Like, you're yeah. like, I like this kid, but not enough to do all the work to fix him. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that was a part of it. Um but also, uh, it's just, I didn't really understand publishing as well as I do now at the time. Yeah, um, you talk to me about it like, all the time. Like, you're, you're, and I'm sure you'll share these resources, but you're constantly bringing up, like, podcasts and interviews, mm-hmm. learning the nitty-gritty details and, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, the publishing industry. Sorry. No, I, you're good. I interrupted, but I just wanted to mention, like... <laughs> Although Benjamin's not published yet, he's he's definitely been doing a lot of homework on this stuff. Um, but I think that uh, my mindset was, oh man, like I've I've studied English, like I've I've read books a lot my entire life. Like surely I'm gonna be able to do this um, without. Um, I, I just thought I was better than I was, frankly. Um, <laughs> And, like, after I had my eyes on it, after I had people's eyes on it, I was like, oh, well, like, I have a lot more to learn than I realized. Um, But also, um, I think, especially at the time, uh, I was a little too worried about getting published, Mm -hmm. which is definitely a pitfall that a lot of early writers fall into. Um, Mm. And a lot of the people that I listened to... um, they, they're really helpful, but one of the most helpful people I've found is Brandon Sanderson, um, who apparently takes speaking about writing very seriously. Um, he's one of the most successful fantasy writers right now. He wrote um, the Stormlight Archives, the Mistborn series, um, and he wrote The End of the Wheel of Time. So he's a very big, successful fantasy writer. Um, and something that he said that really sticks with me about publishing, I think it really applies to writing as well, um, is that whenever, like, let's say the three of us decide to join a basketball team at 
the YMCA. <laughs> oh no. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> um, like we, um, like we're past our prime as far as like <laughs> basketball, as goes. Far as basketball <laughs> goes, if, if we ever had one. Um, and like, we all have lives outside of athletics to where we can't really, don't really have the time or energy to practice like four hours a day, every day. I hate to admit it, but ball is no longer life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And if we're forming this team, people don't go and say, cool, when are you guys joining the NBA? Uh, (laughs) That's a great point. And Mm -hmm. when people talk about publishing, that's basically, if people are like, oh man, like when are you going to get published? That's basically asking the same exact thing. Mm. (laughs) Um, Because another thing Brandon Anderson said, or Sanderson, excuse me, is he was reading this writing from an agent, like a literary agent, who, if you don't know, um, whenever you want to get a book traditionally published, you usually send it to an agent who sells it to editors and publishers. Um, but he said that whenever you send a, quer- a query letter, so it's essentially a letter saying, this is my book, you represent me uh he for one out of every 10 of those he reads the chapters that you attached um for one out of every 10 chapters he reads he asks for the full manuscript and for one out of 10 manuscripts he reads he asks to represent them Uh, and he gets this guy probably gets hundreds of queries at least a week so you probably have about a one percent chance or less uh, a a point one percent chance on average. If you're just if you're just doing pure numbers, you know? yeah. Of course, there's other <laughs> factors and things like that. But wow. Um. So that I think is the best way to describe, uh, at least as numerically as possible, how hard it is to get published, uh, even to get an agent. As hard as to get an agent, let alone published. Um, Do you think it's good, even if? the publishing goal is never met. Do you think it is like good for, for the person who's writing to write? Like, do you think it's a, a worthy cause? Even yeah, I was about to, I was about to ask the same thing. If you say like early authors make a mistake in writing to be published. And so the way I would phrase like Austin's question, how it formed my mind is, well, what would you tell people why they should write if they're starting, if not to be that is the perfect question. Um, <laughs> wow. Look at us, Austin. We're good. We're good hosts. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, writing is wonderful. It is a way for you to uh, get your thoughts on paper, um, to just tell a story. Like, all of us are people who love to consume stories. Like, almost every person is a person who loves to consume stories. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... Writing is meaningful in a much different way, but in a, as equally significant, if not more significant. Because, I mean, we're meant to listen to stories. We're also meant to tell them. Like, we're meant mm-hmm. to... Um, even something as simple as telling your friend what you did that day. Like, yeah. that's essentially just writing. <laughs> like, and there's a good way to tell that story and a bad way to tell that story. Exactly. Um, so I think it's very important to be very realistic about publishing. I think that's 
extremely important. It's important for me as a writer, uh, and I think it's important for people who are learning to write. Um, but I just had the wrong mindset. My mindset was, oh, you know, like, I'm just going to write this, and it's going to be ready to send to agents, like, a month after I show it to somebody. No, it's really, like, no, it's really not. <laughs> like, it's going to take many drafts, many readers, and just a lot of time and effort that I just um, got distracted from when I first started writing. But now I think um, I have a much healthier mindset. Uh, and I'm just enjoying writing for writing's sake. Like, hmm. a good quote that's really stuck with me is from uh, Anne Lamont, who wrote a wonderful book called Bird by Bird. Um, a lot of people use Stephen King as an example, um, his book on writing as the book to read when you're learning to write. And I think that book is excellent. But I think this one, um, like I think that one does a really good job telling you of like how to become a writer. This one does a even better job, I think, of telling you why writing is so wonderful. Yeah, because King is like a freak of nature. Yes. And so mm -hmm. some of his mindset I feel like it just doesn't translate very well yes. to the average person. <laughs> and, it, and I'm not saying that what he has to say about his own experience isn't meaningful. I'm just saying that, like, if I wanted, if somebody came to me and said, hey, like, I'm not even a writer. What's it like to write? I'd show them Bird. Mm -hmm. um, but she quotes Cool Runnings, a very meaningful text. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Sacred. <laughs> where I'm probably going to butcher the quote. Um, but there's a quote where um, what, all the characters are, um, they're Jamaican and they have a bobsled team. And they're very, very excited about winning the Olympics. And they're very excited about possibly getting a gold medal. And they go to their trainer. and They're just talking about how they're excited they are. And the trainer says, um, if, you aren't, if you weren't good enough before the gold medal, you'll be good enough with it. Um, and the same goes for publishing. Like, Anne Lamont said she, like, wrote that down and pasted it above her desk. Um, You're on fire with the sports analogies. This is so <laughs> I'm, so su I'm so surprised, too. <laughs> Benjamin's not the, uh, the, the sportiest person when it comes to kind of the kind of stuff he watches. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just it's a weird coincidence. I, I don't know. I mean... Sports can be very inspiring as a writer, like people who give their everything for what mm -hmm. they do. Like um, Beyblade. Yeah, like Beyblade. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing is more inspiring um, than when Moses parted the Red Sea. See with a Beyblade. Beyblade. Which is canon, by the way. <laughs> Look it up. What? Look it up. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, but really, all, all that's to say is writing is wonderful. It's something that I enjoy doing a lot. Um, I'm trying to learn to be okay with um, maybe me not getting published someday. Maybe I will. Um, but uh, it's just one of those things that if you're very intentional about it, it's like anything else. If you're very intentional about it, it's a muscle. Um, you find people who are passionate about it. You talk with them. You do more reading, you uh, can grow into a better writer. And I think, honestly, 
if you keep at it, like, you'll be at least a pretty good writer someday. Now, this is something I'm, I'm just remembering, but at one point you were uh, meeting up with, like, a group of people who were, uh, like, amateur writers or independently published and things like that. And uh, talk about, like, what those meetings were like and and... It seemed like that was something that was that you really enjoyed. How do people get like plugged into that? What were some of the benefits? Yeah, so um, a Stephen King quote is, you write your first draft with the door closed. You write your second draft with the door open. Um, so I finished my first draft. And I was like, well, Stephen King says I need to go show this to someone. <laughs> so I have to do it. <laughs> um, so I, I just Google writing groups in Lubbock, where I lived at the time. And I found this group, and uh, it was free. I met with them, and they were all very excellent people. Um, many, if not all of them, were excellent writers. Uh, and they were all extremely, extremely helpful. And they were like variety of backgrounds, and they yes. were writing all kinds of different stuff. Mm -hmm. and, things like that. and I was likely the youngest one by quite a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But they were... That also means that most of them were more experienced than me. Most of them had been writing for more than a couple of months at the time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. So they they were much better at looking at my chapters and being like, yeah, like this isn't working than I was. Um, and that probably that I still am uh, because I just don't have as much experience after writing all the time. Um, but I was invited to a group like that once. Um, in when, when I was at my master's program and uh it was uh, again it was it was more like a creatives group like bring whatever you're working on so there were a few like musician types there as well um but one of the things they did in this group was like at the starting of the meeting they were like okay we're gonna go around in a circle everyone introduce yourself and tell us what you're working on and like I I was not prepared for this I wasn't working on anything <laughs> and the circle came around to me and I was like well I'm Austin and uh all right <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm working on finding something to work on yeah uh, <laughs> just just here to enjoy I guess it was fun though there was a um I guess they the way that that group did it was they like scheduled um you could sign up to be like the main presenter for the meetings or whatever and the person that did it when I was there was a screenwriter and she had us do essentially like a table reading of a pilot episode that she'd been working on it was really fun that's really cool not, not super relevant to your experience Benjamin but it reminded <laughs> me of it well I, I think what's helpful is that uh, a lot of people probably think a lot of these creative processes especially if you're if you haven't done them are done like an isolation. Like yeah. You write, you rewrite, maybe you rewrite again, mm -hmm. and you're doing that whole process like by yourself, and then you, you know, get an agent by yourself, and then you get a publisher who has an editor that maybe talks to you a little bit, and, you know, and then it either comes out or it doesn't. Uh, but what y'all are both sharing is that there are groups of people locally in your area that are probably engaging in this and maybe you want to share your writing and maybe you don't even want to be published. Mm -hmm. So you just want to share it with this local group or um, it's probably also helpful to see people who are great writers 
um, in the process in the without process a finished product yeah. yeah that they're they're in the trenches just like you like um, because I I mean I I'm not doing creative writing uh, in terms of fiction but I am working in academia and one of the most helpful things for me was being in these meetings with academics that I respected quite a bit that I had only known from their names on my bookshelf, you know, and seeing them like very rigorously critique like each other's writing uh, with no like shame or uh, bad, you know, bad feelings or ill will about it. And just seeing that like, Oh, like uh, this, this process isn't done by yourself and these are real people, (laughs) you know, like, uh, all of the best-selling authors that you could name off the top of your head are like real people who they probably showed a manuscript to their friend or, you know, their family or their wife and, and they didn't like something. Um, I think rather famously, the Inklings like really didn't like Lord of the Rings when Tolkien was first. all the time, yeah. Was, would make fun of him. Like I think some, I don't remember who it was in the group said something like, if you mention an elf one more time, I'm going to lose my mind or something like that. <laughs> when he was like reading some of the chapters to people. Uh, so no, I think it's helpful for people to kind of have that illusion sort of broken. Uh, if they think this is something that they have to do from start to finish, like by themselves. Yeah. And I mean, it's essentially a necessary part of the process. If you aren't writing to be good, it's way easier to be in conversation with someone uh, about how to do that, especially someone who has as much experience as you, than it is to just do everything by yourself. It's more rewarding a lot of the time. Like sometimes uh, you're having a little trouble uh, with a certain section, or um, sometimes you're just like, man, like I really want to be published, but I, I really am having trouble getting an agent. And those people are there sometimes they have advice sometimes they're just like hey i know what you're going through yeah. and that is... they can look at your query letter and be like hey you should pitch this book differently you yeah. know when you pitched it to me it was more interesting than how you're like writing mm-hmm. it you know all that kind of stuff um like one do you of ever the thing... give yourself deadlines or do you just kind of let it flow <laughs> yeah uh, i have a deadline coming up um I'm... if not are you gonna get in trouble with you Oh, yeah. Uh, if, <laughs> if not, video games are going away. Uh, <laughs> and they did go away for a while as I was starting my book. Not not because I was like, um, grounding myself, but because I was just really interested in getting the book started. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But cool. um, it's a different episode of Chronically Fixing It, but I'm getting really into Dark Souls. <laughs> uh, and if, if I don't finish my book, I will not be playing Dark Souls 2 anytime soon, so. <laughs> you love Dark Souls too? Um, I I love Dark Souls one. I've not okay. played two yet. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Uh, but I'll probably love it. I love Dark Souls too. There's a lot of people Good. that don't, but I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. I still I I like it. I don't love it, but I like it. So we're all we're all good here. Don't worry. <laughs> <All right. laughs> good. Um, um, but uh. Anyway, uh, all that's to say is, like, there are people who are willing to help you, like, and a lot of times it's, like, you can get mentors, like, there are ways to find mentors who will look at your book and critique it and not 
expect much in return. Uh, but there are, most people will want you to look at their stuff. Uh, and if you find somebody at a writing group that you really get along with, that you really like their writing, uh, it's a good idea to approach them and say, hey, uh, would you like to become my writing partner? And that's a more in-depth relationship. Uh, that's you looking at their, like their whole book and them looking at your whole book uh, and you really digging into critiques for each other. Um, but that's, uh, that's what a lot, pretty much most writers try to do that at some point. They try to find good writing partners. You know, and if you, if you go to like your local bookstore, <laughs> this is important to know, it's like you look at the, the back flaps on the books that have like pictures of the authors. There's a reason almost all of them are like in their 30s and 40s and 50s. Hmm. Uh, and very rarely do you see somebody who's like 23 or 24 uh, because those people are really, really good. <laughs> um, it, it Writing, I imagine, you know, it's probably a lot like movie making. Like there's not a ton of super young directors because it's such a technical craft. There's so many elements to it. There's so many directions you can take with it. There's so many ways it can go wrong. There's so many ways it can go right that it takes a long time to develop the skill. And you got to be really good to be, or you got to be very right place, right time. That's one yes. of the things I've learned talking to you. Like you pitched the perfect book for the market trends when you were 23, like that even though the manuscript had problems, they still were going to publish it because it was like exactly what the market wanted. Mm -hmm. Barring that, like you got to be basically like a prodigy. Yeah. But you don't have to be a prodigy to be successful, like as a writer, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's being published or going alternative routes with your writing. Yeah. Um, and the average most writers say is it takes about 10 years from when they start writing to when they're published. Mm -hmm. Writing seriously to when they're published. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like this isn't to scare people off of writing. Um, I, I just think it's good to have realistic expectations because my problem when I started is I didn't. Um, so that's something I take very seriously. You're more likely to end up hating it <laughs> if you don't have these expectations in mind. Yeah. Because uh, it makes sense. I mean, even me as like an academic writer, so I was writing like philosophy and theology, like I may not spend 10 years like in my house, like working on a book, but I do spend like 10 years in school, you know, uh, learning that kind of technical writing, familiarizing myself with all the literature and, mm. and uh, getting to the point where you can produce something that's uh, unique and interesting and of scholarly value. Uh, so this is, it seems like this is pretty much how it is like across the board, you yeah. know, like, it's like anything else like it's a skill that you have to build um it's a skill where uh, it's helpful to break into it as a business if you network um and there's something that writers say uh, that whenever you're first writing you need to get out um your bad words essentially like get out the words that aren't very good <laughs> see it's funny because uh, i really like uh I've talked about this before, Benjamin. I really like the podcast Harmontown, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous and, of course, content warnings. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it's it's run by Dan Harmon, who's the 
creator community in Rick and Morty. Uh, and it's, it's him and like his friends who all have backgrounds in like TV writing and improv comedy that it's almost kind of like a public therapy session for Dan. This could be its whole, a whole episode talking about why I love this podcast. Sometimes he has straight up mental breakdowns on stage, but it's absolutely hilarious. Um, like spontaneous, <laughs> spontaneous improv bits and Dan ranting about different things. But a lot of time, like when, cause it, the show had a lot of audience involvement because they just did it in the back of a comic book shop in LA and Dan all the time. Uh, and Dan is a very abrasive personality. Um, but even he would be like sympathetic and he would say like, if you want to start writing, but you think you're bad, then you just need to get full of spite and sit in front of your laptop and say, well, I'm just going to prove to myself how bad I am. I'm going to write something. That way I can look at it and think about how bad it is. And I can hate Sneaky. myself because we all love to hate ourselves, right? <laughs> but wow. Dan says nine times out of ten, you'll read it and you'll go, yeah, this is bad. But it's not that bad. Yeah. Like there's, and he's like, and if you can be okay with the bad and recognize the stuff that's not that bad. He says like, that's the first step to being able to do this consistently enough to get, to write something that's halfway decent. Because mm-hmm. um, people were constantly like, I want to be a TV writer. I want to like create a show. I want to do all this stuff. And he's like, even I have like a writer's room of like 12 people who graduated from Harvard who are like helping me with this. And even I still have to sit down when I don't know how to start like a pilot go well i'm just gonna write something bad and let the harvard kids tear it apart and then usually they're like oh dan you know most of this actually works pretty well so it's interesting that you say that because i think that's something that i've heard from other writers and i think dan Armin is like a genius yeah a very crazy person who's a genius so there's got to be something to that like get your bad words out (laughs) like if i had a dollar every time i ran into um like a writing YouTuber or like a writing article or podcast. And they're like, anyway, let's talk about Dan Harmon's story circle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's like his, which is really just Joseph Campbell, right? Cause yeah. Dan Harmon loves, loves Joseph Campbell. I think basically anyone who wants to think about fiction at all, uh, Austin could probably test this too, should probably be familiar with Joseph Campbell. <laughs> I actually don't know who that is. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'd like him. You'd like him. The the hero's journey stuff. Like oh. uh, there's only one story, like the universal mm-hmm. story. Monument. Da- yeah, Dan basically uh he found he took Joseph Campbell's more like sort of philosophical ideas and he broke it down into like a concrete structural system with like charts that you can fill out to like plot your story, whether it's a book or an episode or a season of a TV show. And now interesting. Okay. That is cool. I thought you were talking about like a, a current living screenwriter. No, 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 I have have no idea, but yeah, no, yeah, I know Joseph Campbell. Yeah. I was like big fancy European education. They don't even teach about Joseph Campbell. (laughs) (laughs) Accessing the wrong part of my brain. I was in the, so what were you saying uh, about, about that? Getting the, getting the bad words out. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's kind of an oversimplification. I think it's true. Uh, but I think <laughs> I think that's kind of the first layer of that idea. And the second layer is it's not good. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, eventually, like, there's probably some stuff in there that's at least okay that 
you can either recycle um, into a different book or come back later and revise it to where it is good. Refine it. Yeah. That's, that's probably what I'm going to do for my first book. I mean, looking at my second book structurally, I'm like, this structure is very similar to my first book. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that on purpose because uh, the structure was something I thought worked pretty well. I think um, it's a, a unique uh, facet of fantasy as well that like, even if you don't return to the storyline of that first book, like you've already taken a chunk out of the process of world building. If you want to return to that world, you know, mm-hmm. which is like, I mean, Tolkien just had volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of started and unfinished stories in middle earth that didn't make it into, you know, the several that got published in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a, there's a book famously that's, Literally called Unfinished Tales. Unfinished Tales, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have it. I have it on the bookshelf just to remember. So uh, I think that, that that's kind of that's kind of nice since you're in the fantasy genre. Yeah, now that Austin brings it up, what do you see as some of the advantages of writing in a particular subgenre versus uh, uh aside from just that you like it, you know, mm, of course. Yeah. Um other than trying to shoot for just sort of a general uh, general fiction, you know, uh, catch-all uh, sort of publishing that you see is probably the majority of stuff you're going to see, like in a Barnes and Noble, is just going to be like general fiction. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the advantages and disadvantages to like committing to? Uh, I want to be a fantasy writer, or I want to be a sci-fi writer, or I want to be a romance writer, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, fantasy as a genre, I I like a lot just because. Um, a little, there's a little bit of escapism that's uh, involved anytime you read a fantasy story. Like you're literally going into a different world uh, a lot of the time, or you're going into a very different version of our own where more fantastic things can happen. Um, I think that is most what draws me to it. Um, but also, like, it's fun to think of alternate histories. Like, it's fun to look back at the middle ages and be like, man, that those sure were cool. Aren't swords rad? Um, <laughs> what if there were wizards in Poland and then you have the Witcher? Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's funny. I was going to say, I didn't know if we were going to talk about like some of our favorite sort of methods of, of world building, but some of my favorite stuff is um, sort of alternate futures. So not like building an entirely different world, but like, Afrofuturism is pretty cool, which yeah. I guess the most accessible ver- version of that is Black Panther. But um, that's or, neat. And um, also, like, go on. Uh, or uh, yeah, that the one that's my favorite is the universe of uh, Fallout. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, retrofuturism like taken to the extreme, where it's like it's just the same world as ours. It operates by the same rules, except the transistor was never ended, mm-hmm. and the cold, yeah, war, yeah. cold, and the cold war never ended. But it's still set like far in the future is that like what you mean by alternative yes yeah and then also like um so like uh james s.a Corey and dan brown and mary dory russell and a bunch of others like um which are all sci-fi um one thing that they do is uh like they take elements of our world and you know think forward several hundred or thousand years and think like okay how would those have evolved and so almost all of those like the Catholic church 
has its own planet or set of planets, you know, (laughs) things like that. Where like, you know, what, what are the power structures now? How would they look if they continued in the current trajectory? Um, and just imagining a future with the elements that like we have access to. And so we can kind of like comprehend it a little bit easier. Like we have stepping stones to where they end up rather than, you know, a completely imagined, um, from the ground up universe, which is also great a lot of times, but I, I do like it a lot when, when, uh, people pick a point in history and then like do the math from that point forward to where they land. Um, I think that's yeah. neat. And really like, like Pew was saying, like a lot of these futures specifically, a lot of these alternate futures are just like one step removed. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, it's just one step removed from our actual, uh, reality. Um, right. But Really, one of my problems with my first book is that I didn't think enough about how the world worked. Because, like, I was, I was like, ah, I'm, I'll figure out the government later. Like, it's just this council of guys, whatever. <laughs> um, uh. And, like, going back on it, I'm like, that doesn't really make any sense. How does the government work? Like, <laughs> I, I need to fix that. Um, That's definitely something that I would forget to think about, I think. Especially <laughs> in fantasy. Yeah, um, that's that's just something that I just wasn't thinking about enough at the time. But the book I'm writing now is an alternate history of our real world. So it's much easier. Because if I'm ever like, huh, I wonder what um, the government would be like in Switzerland. I could just look up a book about Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but there are, like, there are fantastical elements as well that I, that I can make up. And I, it's fun because I can kind of use those real world things as springboards to yeah. set up my fantastical things. That's really what I needed to do in my first book. I didn't do it. Are there a lot of trains in the one you're doing now? No, trains are not a thing yet. Um, it oh, takes okay. place in 17XX like Frankenstein. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So, so trains are still being thought about yeah. more than actually being used. <laughs> yeah, because I actually had to actually like as writing, as like outlining, I was like, wait a minute, are there trains? Because this is a <laughs> story about them traveling across Europe. I was like, trains would significantly change the story. Yeah, because isn't yeah, there absolutely. a section, I want to say in Dracula, where they're trying to like beat Dracula back to his castle, and it's a race between like a boat and they're like on a carriage? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and some movies change it to a train because mm-hmm. it's probably easier to film a train. I'm like a train would be a boat, <laughs> and they they ride trains in Dracula because that takes place in like eight like the 1890s. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is like well over a hundred years past where Frankenstein takes place. So, would you consider what you're working on now to be like more soft world building? Yes. Um, do you think? To what extent do you think world building is always required for fantasy novels? Like, does it always need to be, if if you're not doing something set in our own world, like an urban fantasy or something like that, do you always need to do hard world building from the bottom up? Can you think of examples? Because you, you know, I'm not just feigning ignorance. You've read a lot more fantasy than I have because I'm way more of a sci-fi and horror guy. Like, do you think that you always have to have all of this laid out for the sake of your story? Uh, or does it sort of depend on what what you're doing, what the goal is? Not at all. Um, 
I listen to a podcast called Writing Excuses, um, and that's a podcast that Brandon Sanderson is on uh, with a, several other uh, writer friends. Um, and they, they talk about ideas. That they, they call them the kernels of ideas. They have like a kernel of an idea, because every idea starts somewhere. Like, I have an idea of this character, or I have an idea of this setting, I have an idea of this specific plot thing happening. They build their story around it. So some people, they start with the setting. Some people start with the world building. Because mm-hmm. uh, they're like, man, this world would be so cool. And they build around that. Um, that's basically what Tolkien did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, he started with languages. Yeah. Right? Even before he named, he was like, oh, well, I'm going to make up a language. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I should come up with a name for the people who speak it. You know? Like, yeah. That's how yeah. he started. <laughs> I know There's some a... people, like, they start with just drawing maps mm-hmm. and then they think about well who lives in these places things like that. fictional well, maps are so cool that is oh, the yeah. coolest thing i love people who make maps um there's a there's a letter of tolkien's at one point where he mentioned that the story of baron and luthien is the kernel of um the sort of cycle of stories that were published um that makes sense. like the, it's because it, it's because that... it's his story <laughs> yeah it's just about him <laughs> But he used that word, though, Colonel, so that's kind of neat. That's cool. I didn't know he used that word. Um, that might have been where they got it. They may not even have known that. <laughs> yeah. They may not have even done it consciously, you know, just being in fantasy settings. Everyone's breathing a little bit of Tolkien's air, whether they want to or not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, he's essentially the Rosetta Stone. And you can use him to talk about anything. Like, right now we're yeah. talking about world building. I want to talk about magic. I want to talk about hard magic and soft magic. Those things are things that are present in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Both of them. Because um, the ring is hard magic. You know exactly what the ring can do, um, why it can do it, uh, and how it does it. And Gandalf is soft magic unless you read the other books. Mm-hmm. Apparently the other books, I haven't read all of them, but apparently all the other books make it. So it's what he can do is hard magic. So soft magic is essentially when something's not explained as well. Um, and it's essentially to create wonder in the reader. Oh, okay. Um, I like that. I've been playing too much D&D. I almost called the Hobbits halflings. Um, the Hobbits. <laughs> um, they look at Gandalf and they're like, wow, that's amazing. I don't know what he's doing, but it's really cool. And it makes him feel smaller. The hard magic is when something's like more important to the plot. Like when, whenever you can like think of how a character is using the magic to either cause or solve problems in the plot. The ring mostly causes problems in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can use him to talk about. It's, it's really interesting because uh, I've listened to a lot of like horror writers and they talk about rules which is a similar conversation. You need to be really careful with rules. Because if you have too many, it might not be scary anymore. <laughs> because if you know everything that your malevolent force, whether it's a ghost or you know some natural force or phenomena or whatever, uh, it becomes too too like graspable. So it's like for for horror, soft magic. Uh, to put that in quotation marks, is used to evoke fear. But hard magic is still used for the plot. 
right? Like, this cursed object behaves in this way so that I can keep the plot consistent. But, you know, maybe this cursed object summons a ghost, but what the ghost can do is soft. I don't really explain it. It just does whatever I need it to do to be scary. It's, it's funny how there's some bleed over. Um, you know, and Austin could probably even comment about, like, hard versus soft sci-fi and how even those concepts are probably oh for sure yeah that's definitely linked an, together. A, a present thing yeah like how does the warp drive in star trek work shut up <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah but like how does uh what are the logistics of space travel and like the expanse i hope you're ready to take notes right <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> there's is. i mean there's so many people that love to really get into the nitty-gritty on the on the how it works stuff but that's i would say the difference in in the hard sci-fi descriptions is that a lot of times it doesn't really serve the plot in the same way that you're describing hard magic doing um a lot of times it's just i think sci-fi doesn't want to suspend your disbelief as much as fantasy Mm -hmm. is no yeah probably that that would be my i'm no sci-fi author but i imagine that might be why some of them choose the hard route. Like, mm-hmm. I want you to believe that the expanse, for example, is a possible future. Right. Um, Cause it's realistic. Like it's far in the future. They still haven't figured out like anything like faster than light travel, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I want to really explain this um, or the, like uh, Austin and I have read the Sparrow, which is just a fantastic book that really gets into the hard sci-fi of like space travel and how it affects time uh in terms of people traveling may not age much compared to everyone on earth you know and how that affects things and um fantasy which it seems like this is part of why you like it is it you kind of based on just you know a, a reader like looking at the cover and seeing a dragon or something you already don't have to do as much work of like grounding them like in the world yeah because by virtue of them picking it up, they're already ready to be somewhere that doesn't follow the same rules. But sci-fi, yeah. depending on the reader, might be really different. Yeah, I think there, um, I would say that there are soft ones, like um, even in the uh, the Warhammer series. You know. Oh the, yeah, of course. The, <laughs> the warp, like, how does the warp work? What it, what, what is it doing to us? And that's all a mystery that even they aren't really willing mm-hmm. to think about too much in the book. You know. Or like I brought up, like Star Trek is is soft sci-fi. Uh, for at least it's like mechanics it's more hard sci-fi for like it's politics um so yeah there's there's that variation so um yeah what 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 are you saying about this the suspension of disbelief um interesting i do think generally readers are more willing to suspend disbelief than when they're looking at science fiction novel whatever you're writing um but another this is another thing Brandon Sanderson was in. I don't remember who exactly saying it. See, it's uh, interesting because you're not, you don't seem to be a huge fan of like his books. Like you've read all of his books, mm-hmm. but you just really, you just seem to really like his insight into the process yeah. of things like that. It's just because he does an amazing job making it realistic. And all like the way he talks about writing is realistic, but he's not mean about it. He ironically <laughs> demystifies you know the writing process yeah, uh, yeah. i'm gonna read his stuff i have i'm looking at way of the kings on the bookshelf right now oh, yeah I, I i'm not to say uh, <laughs> benjamin's no brand sanderson hater he just you know you've so far you've engaged more with sort of his 
constructional material you could say, but it's a fiction. But I, I have so far. But um, I, I don't think he was the one who said it, but somebody on the panel said that um, you get a certain amount of currency whenever you're writing a book. Uh, sometimes you get, you get more, sometimes you get less. Uh, I think, yeah, you have less currency to spend to explain things. Um, like whatever you're writing, like a sci-fi book, like mm -hmm. um, you eventually you'll lose people if you throw stuff in too much, and that's it. Just depends on what fan sci-fi you're writing. Mm -hmm. I'm not a sci-fi writer, um, and <laughs> unless was, you find an audience of like really niche, yeah, weirdos like me, who's like, I'll read forty pages about quantum mechanics that justifies this version of space travel. But most people are understandably not interested in that. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, I think I'm saying this backwards. Okay. <laughs> more currency when you're writing um, fantasies. Uh, you're writing sci-fi. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm getting mixed up over here. You have to, you're sort of saying like, every book has a certain number of opportunities to sort of ground the story. Yes. And those opportunities take up time like they take up pages yes and you have to spend more pages doing that generally for sci-fi than you do for fantasy yes. is that kind of what you're saying this okay is, mm. this is why you're the pro podcast <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's my job to read arguments and break them down. So. Yes. um but but yeah uh, but you get more chances to to explain things if you're an established author Mm -hmm. Or if people know exactly what genre they're getting into. Like, uh, if people know that they're getting into a hard sci-fi book, you're going to have more opportunities to be like, yeah, yeah, this, this is how this works. I'm going to spend, uh, like, a thousand words explaining how this works. Uh, but if you're, like, a less-known author, or if you're, like, I am writing this for middle grade readers. Yeah. You, you do not yeah. have much currency at all. Mm -hmm. Like middle grade readers, if you explain something for a thousand pages, only like no one's going to read that. It would probably just be better to write your protagonist not understanding yeah. how it works. <laughs> yes. um, oh, that's a, that's an interesting technique. I like that. <laughs> which, I've seen some some like why sci-fi stories and stuff do i mean some of that happens even in ender's game it's yeah. just like don't worry yeah. about it your job is to you know is to run the game don't worry about everything else <laughs> and that's why yeah. that's great that's why middle grade books are like that because mm -hmm. the protagonist probably doesn't understand what's going on either yeah <laughs> so uh what what do you see uh in your future for your writing what are some of your long-term goals uh as we wrap this up just to see like what are you looking forward to what where do you hope to be with your writing in the future um i want to finish my book first um i want to finish the first draft then i will likely get really serious about finding a writing group um hopefully find a writing partner if i can find somebody who's willing to show me their work for mm -hmm. show them their work um, then I'll probably when I'm comfortable with the quality I'll start talking to agents uh, maybe one day I'll get published maybe one day I won't 
Um, but I'm kind of having to learn to be okay with that, mm -hmm. uh, at least not in the near future. But I love writing. Like I said, um, I think it's very valuable to anybody. Like, even if you're listening to this right now and saying, man, I don't know how to write. Like, I, I barely even string a sentence together. Like, I think you would get something out of just sitting down and writing down a story. It could be your story. It could be just something in your head. Keeping a journal and just narrating your day. At the end of the day, nobody is going to have the same exact perspective that you are. Um, and this is, this is a type of art that you can make as long as you have something to write on. If you have a notebook and a pen, you can do it. Um, like Eventually, you might want to find people to read it, but you can do it. Uh, it's, you don't have to have extensive knowledge of cameras or, or musical instruments or it's amazing, and I love doing it. This thing will be better with more good writers, more writers in general. Cool beans. Well, very good uh, stuff. I think we all learned a lesson today. What was that lesson, Michael? You have to get the bad words out. Yes. And chemical warfare has been banned at Yu Gi Oh! tournament. <laughs> <laughs> well Benjamin thank you so much yeah thank you so much for coming, coming on. on this is great you have a very unique perspective on this and uh, as someone who is not at the very beginning of this process but also not someone who's on the other side of publishing that's probably you're probably one of the only one of the only people we could grab for that so hopefully Sometime in the future, with a little luck, maybe we can interview again on the other side of the process. Yeah, if, that, that sounds great. It's a huge honor to be here. <laughs> so, any That's nice of you to say. Any final words, Austin? That sounded ominous. I just mean for the episode, not, not in general. Uh, yeah, we can go ahead and do our little announcements, I guess, before we say bye. Oh yeah, we never took a break, but that's okay because yeah, I think it's fine. We were um, we were we were just cruising. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, if you if you want to engage with us, we have a Twitter. It is at cfixatedpod. Um, there is currently an offer on the table that we might talk about your topic if you have one you want us to look into. Um, it's fa so. in fact, as long as it is not in violation of our general, generally family friendly tone, uh, and it's something that we can talk about according to terms of service and such. Right. I will guarantee that one of us will talk about it. It's not just a possibly. I will guarantee. The Michael Pugh guarantee or your money back. Mm -hmm. um, also, we want to thank fellow American for the use of our theme song, which is Island off of the album Hold Your Breath. Stream it. And check out Tiger's. And, yeah, unof and unofficial partner of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, again, the album Palo Duro. Um, it's on all all streaming stuff. So, and I like it a lot. It's really fun to be able to play music that you like. Um, and in recent years, I've done a lot of of not that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> most of the stuff I've done live, I've been like, well, I guess you know, I'll get a little bit of money for it, and that'll be good. Or 
Um, or I'm like volunteering or helping a friend out or something like that. Um, and it's fine. It's still fun to like, I enjoy playing music no matter what, but like playing music that you like is so much more fun. And yeah, I just had a blast. So yeah, I hope you get more opportunities for that in the future. Yeah, me too. All right. It was good to catch up with you, Austin. Um, Yes. And you know, everyone stay hydrated and we'll catch you on the next episode. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Take me from my Sure, if we'll make.